Welcome to the Beacon Way Podcast, where your hosts, Jennifer Christensen and Adrian Wilkerson, talk shop about what really works in today's digital marketing world. As the co-founders of Beacon Media and Marketing, Jennifer and Adrian have been a part of digital marketing since its early stages in the mid-2000s. Tune in as they shine light on what works and what doesn't in the ever-changing world of digital marketing for small businesses. Welcome back to the Beacon Way podcast. We have been having such an amazing time with this series on just really shining your light on people that are making a big impact in the mental health field. It has been so encouraging to me. And I'm very excited for our guest today, Jacqueline Hall, who's going to talk about Wired for Addiction. And as she was saying right before we got on, hopefully she's got some things to share that maybe you guys are not aware of. I'm not aware of what's happening with this organization and how it impacts mental health. So welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. It's a pleasure. Let's just dig right into it. Our listeners, for the listeners who don't know Wired for Addiction and what this is about, can you give just maybe a, a one-minute overview of, of what the organization is and how you're part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Addiction is a biopsychosocial disease. It involves multiple components. And for so long, this industry has really focused on the psychological and the social aspects because we've simply lacked the biological tools. Since the completion of the human genome in 2003, science has really accelerated with what we know about our DNA, our neurotransmitters, and how that all interacts with the environment. Wired for Addiction, we came on the scene in 2020. Our research and development started way back in 2006, and we started working primarily with criminal defense attorneys. So we had to pick a name that was very stigmatizing, that made you stop in your tracks. Um, and it, we were very efficient at that, right? It's a name that says Wired for Addiction. How is this possible? Right. As we began to expand in the marketplace, we realized that there were a lot more people that were in different aspects of behavioral health that were interested in learning more about their physiology. So we're actually expanding into Wired Biohealth as of next week. So your listener is here at first from me. Yeah, because you think about it, we're not healthy one day and addicted the next. <clears throat> it's all of the living that we do in between that can bring us to the end result of addiction. So we want to be able to address these milestones before we get to the end result of addiction. And that's exactly what we do. Obviously, it's a new way of thinking about addiction. It's not something that I've heard a lot of, and I've definitely been in the mental health space for quite a while. Right. But is this a new way of not just thinking about it, but are there other people that are beginning to really catch on to the combination of these two factors, not just psychological, but bio as well? Yeah, for a long time, we discussed that biological piece of addiction, but it was nothing more than there's probably some sort of an ancestral or familial aspect um, right. of addiction, but it didn't go further than that. It wasn't until we were able to identify specific genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms. I don't want to make any of your listeners turn off <laughs> the podcast, but basically an error, it's just um, an error in genetic coding. So when you have a polymorphism, that can be linked to aberrant behaviors. So things like risk-taking, impulse control, anxiety, depression, as well as addiction. So once science discovered these things, we said, there's a little bit more to this biopsychosocial disease that we can understand now. That is revolutionary from where we've been. Absolutely. So tell me how Wired for Addiction, so you started, you said in criminal justice, and mm -hmm. how did that information help in those situations? Where were you brought in and how is that information then used to help people? 
Behavioral health plays such a large part in crimes. When we're working with clients, typically it's the criminal defense attorney that engages us. It's a client facing charges related to alcohol, sex, drugs, gambling, sometimes mental health. And this is really an opportunity to have objective documentation of a condition that's better treated medically rather than penalized legally be a part of the case. It's not to say that if someone commits a crime, they should go unpunished, but certainly if mental health played a role in the crime, it needs to play a role in how we're going to rehabilitate the individual. Yeah, I love that. I'm a huge believer in that. I'm involved in quite a few projects in homelessness and mental health is often a huge component of that. And when people are treated, this is on a very small scale, but when people are treated humanly that part first and looking at community and looking at all the other things that affect those decisions, I've seen incredible transformations and success. And when you add science to it, that's the piece we haven't even been looking at, but I've already seen enough anecdotal evidence that I know we're missing the boat on just labeling somebody either a criminal or you're an addict and then you can't be helped. That yeah. just, that's not helping our society at all. <laughs> no. And quite frankly, this empowers judges to feel like they're giving the most comprehensive and well-informed sentence that they can, because previously you're just relying on somebody says, I'm sorry, here's all the things that were stacked against them, but there's really no hard objective facts to say this person needs help and here's how we're going to help them. Yeah. I'm the newly elected chairperson of the Florida Justice Center. And so we're so excited to be able to make these tools that are objective, more widely accessible to the community at large, depending on if you're looking at local, state, federal jails or prison systems. It's about half where mental health is playing a role in someone's criminal history. And so when we think about what happens in a correctional facility, you're not going there to get healthy. If you have a pre-existing mental health condition, it's just going to be exacerbated and made worse. So if we've got somebody that has a behavioral health issue, we probably need to circumvent them to serve their crime, the punishment for their crime, right? But to put them in an environment that's not going to make them sicker. And that just not only benefits them, but benefits all of us, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's still part of the community. The ultimate goal is for somebody to be released and go on to be a productive citizen, right? And so how do we expect that to happen if mental health played a role in their crime and we don't give them the services? They're going to recidivate, right? I'm based out of the state of Florida. We have a recidivism rate around 24%. That's not just expensive for economy to our workforce, but that's detrimental to families and community systems at large. So we need to do all we can to support people who say, I want to get back on my feet and do the next right thing. I love that. So this is probably jumping ahead a bit, but now I'm thinking about this on a much bigger scale. It's very exciting. So in your like ideal world, 20 years from now, 10 years from now, what would this look like on a massive scale throughout the United States? What would the outcomes be? Where would this be applied besides even criminal justice? I would love to see the wired for biohealth testing be used prophylactically, preventatively, because there's a huge push within the funding right now to say we need to do more on the prevention and not just treatment side. But education is education. That's not prevention, right? So if we're able to use this testing as a tool to identify in someone's youth where there's less than optimal biomarkers and then support them appropriately, 
that's how we're preventing somebody from reaching outside of themselves to drugs, to alcohol, pornography, whatever the case may be to self-medicate, right? Because that's typically where an addiction starts is someone trying to self-medicate a diagnosed and undiagnosed condition or a trauma. So if we got right. to integrate this and in, even to someone's physical, you go to your doctor for your yearly checkup, let's see where your biomarkers are to get a clear picture of what we need to do moving forward to best support your behavioral health. I'll be a little bit vulnerable here. This is really near and dear to my heart because I was undiagnosed ADD as a teenager and I, I functioned pretty well in school. I could, what do you call it when you can just memorize something by looking at it, just like that visual memorization. So I had yeah, that photographic memory. Yeah. So I could use that to overcome and it, it, so I still got good grades in school, but I was just constantly not connecting because of that ADD and other issues and for, forget things all the time made people think I was really flaky. And so I went into some definite behavioral health stuff as I got into my young 20s that was not healthy for me, not positive. And I really didn't come out of it to my 30s and then yeah. actually got a proper diagnosis. I actually don't use any meds or anything. But as soon as I found that out, I guess this is the point of my story. As soon as I found that out, it explained so many things because I was fighting so hard to be a good person. Yeah. And yet was constantly labeled as either flaky or forgetful, or you hear that enough and you start believing that about yourself. But some sort of, even in that case, something that would have told me that back when I was 16 would have been, okay, I'm obviously not trying to do this. This is literally the way my brain is wired. And now I've been able to obviously have a very healthy life, a productive life, have a good life and, and work around it. And I'm really open with people about it, but I'm just thinking about people that, I mean, what would that look like if we did the preventative testing? Then what would that person then do? Would it be something like, okay, these are the things that are going to help you? Do we have things like we do now for ADD that could help people? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And your story sounds very similar to a lot of our clients because you think about traditionally how someone is diagnosed. It's all based on vocabulary. So it's your vocabulary, it's your physician's vocabulary. So what if you have different ways of explaining your feelings that can yield different diagnoses, which yield different treatment plans or prescriptions. So through our testing, we're providing objective biochemical pathways, right? These biomarkers that say, okay, there is an inequity here, there's a deficit, there's too much of this. And then we make recommendations accordingly. So when we create a plan for somebody, we're looking at biosynthesis precursors just to fill the gaps, right? So Rather than jumping to an end pharmaceutical of something that has to be used, we're not just chasing symptoms, we're figuring out where is this problem fundamentally, and then supporting there. And in, in my opinion, it's the perfect case scenario, because if you have children who diagnosed ADHD early, they're put on some sort of stimulant, so let's say a Ritalin or another ADHD medication, and then they turn 18 and they're still looking towards something outside of themselves like a pill to feel better right? Why are we shocked right. when somebody goes on to develop an addiction? We've told them this is how you feel better, right? right? So that's another means of prevention is saying, let's figure out actually where the problem is instead of what the problem sounds like it might be. I love that. I don't know. Are you familiar with, with Dr. Amen at all? Yeah, Dr. Amen. We see a lot of his clients. Yep. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with everything, but I love some of the approaches and the things that he's talked about, because as you can imagine, all three of my kids have various similar things that I grew up with. And 
but being aware of that, I was able to talk them through that. Actually, none of them went on Ritalin. And I'm not saying that's terrible. I'm just saying for my kids, we worked on other solutions. Sure. But I love what he talks about of the brain. It's everything that you're saying as far as it's all comes down to the vocabulary of how people describe what's wrong with them versus us actually looking at the scientific, what is actually going on in the brain. Yep. Yep. And I had not thought about that. Like we've come so far with science with our heart and lungs and the rest of our body, but our brain feels like the thing that's been left out in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really why our founder got started in the work that she does is because so much of healthcare had evolved, but for some reason, substance use disorder treatment was living in the dark ages. And I think a lot of that has to do with the stigma around the disease of addiction, right? We still have a whole tribe in the medical community that would disagree that it's a disease. And it makes sense. Why? Because when you look at the definition of a disease, it's any deviation that's harmful to the normal structural or functional state of an organism. So if you're only looking at the psychological and social components of addiction, it can be a hard sell to say that it's a disease. But when you look yeah. at this biological piece through biomarkers, it's very much a disease, really meets the definition to a T. So that's why it's so important to break down addiction beyond just someone's behaviors and really figure out what's causing those behaviors, right? Because when we're going over someone's biomarker evaluation report, often they cry because they're saying, so there's nothing wrong with me because you own this feeling of there's some sort of character flaw. There's some sort of moral defect here. When yeah. in reality, there's just parts of your biology that need support. And now that we know how to support them, let's get to work. I love that. that. It's really, what an encouraging, yeah, what an encouraging thing to be a part of. So tell me for Wired for Addiction, let's say this is resonating with people and they're like, okay, I want to know more. I want to understand how far has this advanced as far as being taken seriously? Because like you said, there's definitely still debate, right? Is it mainly in Florida? Is it in other states? Where are we at right now? Yeah. So nationwide, we actually work within other countries as well, because our test kits can be drop shipped to either someone's home, their dorm, even their correctional facility. And then we work with them remotely because once we have that testing, we don't have to come in and take your blood pressure or listen to your heart. We're able to see physiologically where are the pain points and how do we then make recommendations to support your unique physiology. In terms of the biomarkers that we're looking at, none of them were discovered by Wired for Addiction. So this is the NIH, this is NIDA, NIAAA. We simply said right. these are so important for it to lead to actionable information for the end user, which is the consumer. So let's say you're somebody, you get this and they have a relief because they find this. The information sent back to you at this point, then, is it more of a, a therapy type process or is it just truly individualized for every person? Truly individualized. So we don't specialize in that therapy piece. It's incredibly important. We can make referrals to the appropriate provider for that. We're just simply looking at the biological portion. So somebody receives the test kit, they collect their samples, send them back to the labs. We interpret the results and create that biomarker evaluation report in addition to the biochemical pathway support plan recommendation. You're going to meet with one of our Wired for Addiction health consultants once every two weeks talking about the recommendations, the plan of support, if anything needs to be increased or decreased, and really just making sure that you progress as we expect you should. Okay. And so recommendations might include anything from, like you said, a therapy. It might include 
certain, I would think, behaviors and then possibly even medication, depending on what the situation is, correct? Yeah. So we get as uh, specific as biosynthesis precursors. So basically what that is, a uniquely designed nutraceutical, and it's dosing specific to the client. So that way we're seeing, okay, in this pathway, let's pick on GABA, for example, or serotonin. You have for your reference range based on your age and your gender, you should be between 60 and 125. You're low at 45. So then we make a recommendation of that specific precursor to support your serotonin pathway. It's interesting because we'll have clients who suffering from depression. They've been on SSRIs for a decade. They've tried a whole bunch of different ones. It's not working. They go through our testing and they find out that they have the CERT gene. The CERT gene not only predisposes you for anxiety and depression, but more importantly, makes your responsiveness to an SSRI less. So it doesn't matter what you're taking, how much you're taking, your body literally doesn't know what to do with it. So that tells us that we have to support that pathway differently and how empowering to somebody who maybe they've received a treatment resistant diagnosis depression, right? So I would think you'd start to own that and say, is this me just not wanting to get better? Will anything ever work for me? When in reality, this has nothing to do with your willpower. This is literally a genetic defect that we can support, but in order to support it, we have to identify it first. So how is the medical profession in general taking this information? I know that's just not the way Western medicine is necessarily, I have a huge respect for doctors, so not against them at all, but this is almost outside of the system is what I would say, right? Would you say that's a pretty fair assessment? Absolutely, Jennifer. And you think about the average doctor in medical school or residency, they're doing like eight hours in addiction same as nurses. That's not enough. Kaiser Permanente, they just came out with a study in 2021 that I think it's 53% of Americans are either suffering with addiction, anxiety, or depression. Yeah. That's half of people. So everybody's behavioral health has really been compromised. And so now we look at addiction usually comes as a result of trying to self-medicate that anxiety, that depression, whatever the case may be. So fortunately, although the medical community, this has turned it on its head and saying, we're not taught this in school. How can this be? But when they have a patient who's just not getting better and then comes back to them with these results and say, what do you think of this? Now, for the first time, a doctor says, I have objective data to inform. Right. That's empowering to them because that can't feel good as a doctor to say, I don't know what to do for you. I'm all out of ideas. I think we look to doctors as the solution, right? So they want help too. I think that is a a really fair and honest assessment. It's not their fault, right? If that's all the information that they are taught and that's what our system basically is based on is that we just put a drug to a solution. But if we're not really getting to the root of the problem, some of the clients that we work with are more in like the functional medicine, mental health field, like even a crossover to that. And that is something I hear a lot is just trying to get to the root, trying to get to the the symptoms, but trying to understand what is causing this. I could describe what you guys are doing. That's really it. You're getting to the root of the problem. Yeah, that's it. And now that we're starting to see addiction become much more prevalent, and I think it's the earlier onset and earlier access, right? So now we have access to pornography. We have access to cannabis. We have access to alcohol. All of these things at an earlier age and what that's doing to our physiology while it's still developing 
that has serious implications. And so we're going to have a lot more people that need a lot more support. And Nida saying that 80% of individuals relapse in 90 days, we can't keep on this wheel because we're going to have a whole generation of children who become adults, who become parents that their physiology is not equipped to live a productive and happy life. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's a massive issue. And even if this is part of the solution, it's a huge answer. Yeah, absolutely. So again, so back to that question of where are we going to be 10 years from now? So if, if this really takes off even beyond where you are now, do you see doctors reaching out to you? Do you see individuals being able to reach out as part of this, like a a marketing effort where this needs to get pushed out so people understand this is even available? Yeah, it is. The only way to consume a good is to know that it exists, right? So the more doctors that have access to us, the more individuals who have access, the more attorneys that have access, the more people that are ultimately going to be served, not necessarily better, but more comprehensively to address their behavioral health. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to put this out there and even just do my <laughs> small little part to help promote. This is the whole reason for this podcast, actually. So that makes me really happy. So on the Mental Health Marketing Conference, are you speaking about this exactly? Or are we gonna, is it, are you going to go into the detail and really explain to the folks that are there? We're going to dive deep into the panel, into the biomarkers, why we've selected the ones that we have. So our panel includes 85 biomarkers. I'm going to talk about why we picked those ones what they work on in terms of behavioral health, and then go through two case studies. So we're able to work with individuals as young as two years old, all the way up to 98. So I've selected two case studies. One is a young adult and one is a pediatric client. Okay. I'd love to hear a success story. Obviously, if you're using case studies, not breaking any confidentiality, but on a case study, what have you seen progress? So where's the hopeful part of this conversation? I would love to to share. Yeah. So one that I like to share frequently, and it's funny because no matter how many times I share this one, it still gives me goosebumps. We had a five-year-old young girl. She was adopted in Hillsborough County, Florida. She was born with NAS. So that's neonatal abstinence syndrome. When she was born, her mother was on methadone as well as barbiturates. She coded twice in the hospital. They had to revive her each time. Um, Fortunately, she did not have to be intubated. So she was detoxed appropriately, but then, of course, after discharge, she went through months of withdrawals. And so her adopted mom knew about the family history, the biological family history of behavioral health of addiction and started noticing these kind of signs of potential addiction in her child. So having sleep issues, having focus problems, having interpersonal relationship issues. And the mom said, I need to figure out what to do for my new daughter because she is going to live out this family lineage story of addiction. I can already see it. So the child got started with testing with us six months into her three months into her protocol. She went through the Florida VPK testing. So basically it's the state's way of looking at your learning, your cognition, all the things that you need to be prepared for to go into kindergarten. So she was scoring very low initially. By the end of the six months, the school actually gave her the character award for her willingness to help others in school. And she's, wow. uh, yeah, she started piano lessons. Her family life really just exploded. And the mother attributes it to this biochemical support because without this, her daughter would have likely 
began to self-medicate, right? These feelings of I can't focus in school. Nobody likes me. Nobody gets me. I'm starting to withdraw things that would make sense giving her physiology, right? But what can be measured can be managed. And so starting at that, at such a young age of five years old, you think about how somebody's life has changed through testing. And so I always love to share that one because to me, that's the perfect case scenario. That is what prevention looks like. Somebody being armed early with the facts of their physiology to know they don't have the wiggle room to try it even just once because they are wired to self-medicate. That gives me goosebumps. That is, that is <laughs> awesome. I, I hadn't even thought about, honestly, that age. But Yes, yeah, so young. Um, and you think about, you, you can spot the kids who, okay, we need to look out for that one because they're doing yeah. these things that you just know they're trying to seek stimulation or palliatively just feel better. And then over time, what used to be something simple at that 12, 13 years old becomes experimentation. And then it becomes, now I do this habitually with the end result of I can't stop. Yeah. I have enjoyed this so much, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'm very excited to, to get this out, to help promote, to learn more about it at the Mental Health Marketing Conference. And is there anything else that you really want the listeners to know or anything else that you feel like we didn't cover that would be helpful. Obviously, find you online, right? Wiredforaddiction.com. And this can all be done online as far as ordering the test. Correct. Yep. And you're going to get to meet with one of our health consultants for a complimentary consultation. So that way you can learn more about our services, make sure it's a right fit for you. But I would just want to leave your listeners to feel empowered, to know that if you've been feeling a certain way, if you think that this isn't normal, the way that you feel, if you recognize that you have been self-medicating, there are solutions out there. So don't feel like you're trapped by your family history. Even if you come from a long line of people who self-medicated, the story can end with you right there because we have now the tools to support. Thank you so much for sharing your time. And I will put up all the links uh, for our listeners. I'll put up the website link, how you can reach out to Wired for Addiction and really appreciate you sharing the story. And I hope this just takes off. I really yeah. do. I hope Thank this you so much. part of a good solution. I appreciate it, Jen. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Beacon Way. We hope you enjoyed it and had some good takeaways. Please subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you've enjoyed the show, please give us some stars on your podcast channel of choice. For more information, tips, and notes from the show, check us out at beaconmm.com. For more information on how Beacon can help market your business, email us at welcome at beaconmm.com.